This is Tamsin Granger. Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan read the paper. It's uh, Sunday. September, September. 29th. Happy Rosh Hashanah to you. Yeah, later tonight. But yes. Well, not too much later. Well, you're right. By the time people hear this, uh, yes. By the time people hear this, right. Rosh, Rosh Hashanah will be over. Right. Well, okay. Well, the true. high holy days are just beginning. Exactly. Uh, and uh, it seems like fall. I'm getting there. It's almost 80 today, so... Uh, it's a little too warm for far. Right. And frankly, a little too warm for going to temple in your best clothes. Oh, that I have a lot of history um, with. It's, uh, that, it's not about Rosh Hashanah there. It's Yom Kippur when you're really uncomfortable because you're fasting and it's, you get a hot day once in a while. It's not a good thing. Right. It, it happens. Especially people who are you know very observant won't drive, so they'll only walk on those days. That's a hot walk. Hot walk, exactly right. Um, okay, so in any event, uh, we have been out and about, as is our want, and uh, on Thursday... In other words... What? To translate, yeah. I dragged you to you the theater. You didn't drag I, I'm in the city. I'm in the city, honey. I uh, understand, but I hear about these crazy things, Yeah. and then I say, I think we should see this. Well, see, I didn't realize... First of all, let me, let me just put the headline on this. So we saw Fern Hill uh, on Thursday... Uh, in New York, which is a play, and I didn't realize until perhaps when we were going, or maybe afterwards, or intermission, you told me that you had heard about it on uh, the Broadway channel. Right. Uh, I heard an interview. I thought that was interesting. With some of the actors. Right. And they sounded great. And that sounded interesting. Okay. So I thought we should go. Right. It was a little theater. Yeah, we should talk about the theater. So the theater is on 59 East 59th Street. Now, that's not... And it's, broad... called the e, it's called 59 E 59 Theater. That's right. But to yeah. the, the close listeners, the word East is in there, which means it's not on Broadway, right? So Broadway's West. Right. It's, it's uh, 7th, 8th, 9th Avenue, and it's in uh, the 40s. This is East 59th Street. It's in the land of office buildings, just a tad north of it. Uh, it's not even surrounded by too much in the way of restaurants and tucked away, or I would say a pretty nice little theater. Well, it's a complex of uh, several different venues. Right. And uh, it, uh, you know. Tucked away. Yeah. Uh, in a corporate setting otherwise, a little theater, which is relatively new, seats about 130 people. And, uh, you know, don't, they don't charge top prices. There's no such thing as a bad seat. Wait, 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 wait. First of all, it, yeah. we were in Theater A. Yeah. We don't know what the size of the other theaters. And uh, second of all, they seem to have short run, you know, kind of new things. That's what this We was. haven't done our research, have we? We don't really know I, much I, about the I've researched this thoroughly, so I'm confident in what I'm saying. So and they, for a small production, I think it is top dollar. Because uh, the tickets cost sixty to ninety dollars. Yeah, I understand. But okay, the, so it's less than going to. It's a little less than roundabout. Frozen. Yeah. Or yeah, it's half of what Evan Hansen. Right. Or, or, okay. It's, but it's still it, it costs more than you know. It's, it's not a movie, movies. and it's usually a flyer, right? You're taking a chance. You no don't question. Know exactly. Listen, I'm not advertising for them. So let's talk about the play. So the play is we mentioned that, that you had heard about it on the radio. So it's a play by Michael Tucker. Michael Tucker is a was a reasonably well known television actor in large part because of L.A. Law, and the play is uh, populated the actors at least. His friends and his wife, many of which were associated with L.A. Law, so they're kind of familiar faces. So there are uh, people like uh, Marklin Baker, who's on Broadway on television a lot. Jill Eikenberry is his wife. She was in L.A. Law. 
Mark Bloom is on television a lot, including uh, he has a regular part in Mozart in the Jungle. Uh, John Glover was on Broadway a lot. He also was in L.A. Law. He was in Scrooge a million years ago. He's a guy, he's a character actor. I think that's fair. And he's always the third or fourth lead, and he's always great, and he's the best thing in this. And a couple of uh, women actors who I don't really know, honestly, who are Jodie Long uh, and Ellen Parker. Um, And uh, it was a situation... uh, it was almost a little too cozy, a little too familiar. So in terms of Tucker writing about what he and his friends know about. So you have some folks who are, live in New York City, who are 60, 70, one as old as 80 in New York. And uh, they are thinking about getting together and living in what they call a commune, but really sharing a house in what I'll call upstate New York in their declining years as they move out of the city. So well, the, the play. The play. Fern Hill yes. takes place at that farmhouse. Right. And uh, the farmhouse belongs to... Mark Bloom's character. Mark Bloom and uh, Jill His, Eikenberry. Right. And apparently this has been the site of many gatherings over the years right. of this group of friends. They're all sort of, not all, most of them are kind of associated with some school, some university. They're all artists or writers or something like that. Uh, the one outlier, perhaps, is the character played by Mark Lynn Baker, who is an ex-rock and roll guy, or current rock and roll, but popular years ago. So he's, uh, you know, the, the guy who's sort of out there a little bit with the longer hair and more expressive. But you can see where they're all friends. And uh, the first, you know, as we were discussing it, the first act and the second act are a little bit different. They're almost like two different plays, right? Is that fair? Yes. Yeah. So the first act is talking about this notion uh, debating, discussing whether they ought to all go in together on this uh, on this house upstate. The others would buy a share, presumably, and they'd have a little bit of their own apartment or space upstate. Can they all get along? And the second uh, act, which is about what I might call a more conventional drama, and that with respect to one of the couples, uh, there's, there's an infidelity and how they're going to handle that and how the other couples react to that. Uh, but it's not set up as two plays. It's set up as one play. Uh, it just doesn't work. It doesn't knit together. So it feels like it's two plays. So uh, what do you think? I, you know, I thought it was okay. Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, part of my problem was I came directly from teaching a long class. And I spent quite a few miles uh, in the car getting to the theater, and we did not have time to eat anything before the play. (laughs) And the play starts out with the characters making a fabulous meal. And Mark Lynn Baker does this soliloquy uh, detailing a recipe for linguine with clam sauce. And it was killing me. Killing me. (laughs) Really? Um, By the way, that recipe is included in the program. Yeah. Um, so, I mean, it, it was fun and interesting, obviously relatable to some extent. You have a a group of older people, older actors and actresses contemplating the future and, uh, a little bit reminiscing, uh, the past dealing with various demons, um, and, uh, you know, their hopes for the future, etc. cetera. Uh, so it was, you know. Um, accessible, yeah. but 
it might have been more like a, a TV show. Well, it was clearly sensibility was more, yeah. than a um, Broadway right. sensibility. Right. It, you know, there you, there weren't any moments of tremendous, uh, I don't know, emotion or angst or you know they they were flailing towards that, but uh, it didn't really, I guess, awaken in me any. You know, deep uh, contemplation. Right. Well, the first, I, again, I split it up in the two acts. In the first act, everything you say is true. And my overall assessment, by the way, is the same as yours. It was fine. But the first act, uh, it was relatable. The characters, the characters were easy to identify. They're talking about food and the way people in New York talk about food, which is namely too much. And you knew the people on stage and it was dull. The first act was <laughs> dull because, you know, it was so superficial and it's just like, you know, can I write lines about what people might say to each other at Zabar's uh, as long as they're only moderately interesting people? It's just not very interesting. So there wasn't anything at stake in the first act. And the second act was much better, which is rare. First of all, the second act is better. And even though it was more conventional, at least there was a, something in the nature of a conflict which forced the characters to engage in a more energetic level. The, first, the actors seemed almost... Like they were walking through it in their sleep in the first act. That's they, true. They weren't That's even true. acting. They, they yeah. might have all just, you know, been kept talking about what they did in the afternoon. I mean, it was nothing. The second act, they were forced to engage in a different way. And even if, uh, there were, again, as you said, no deep secrets, no deep insights, uh, it, it was much more engaging, the second act. Uh, it had the feel of a workshop. There were lines in there that you were saying, they must be trying that line out. That line doesn't work. That line doesn't fit. This is a plot line which is not being developed. It must have been from a previous draft. And you tell me that in the interview you heard, they were talking about it being that way. Isn't that right? Right, right. You know, I'm sure, uh, specifically, I think Jill Eikenberry was making various suggestions to her husband, right. the the writer, the playwright. Well, um, so they might have been good suggestions. I don't know. But right. whatever they were, he's still working on it, right? Right. Or there might have been bad suggestions. I mean, no, there are a lot of situations. It's very hard to uh, create a great work of art uh, using a committee. Yes. Okay. Everybody throws their ideas well, but, in. But this is his uh, wife. Poly, it's his wife. is totally against that, by the way, the great sculptor of ancient Greece. Yeah. Um, so uh, who knows? But the thing is, did you feel your, you know, 140 bucks was well spent? Oh, I don't think about it that way. I, I had a good but, time. But, I, I, yeah. I thought it was fine. I yeah. thought it was fine. And we've been talking about it a lot. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Uh, you know, it's very, yeah. It's, so in, in ways for us, it was more interactive. Um, and yeah. it's a different um, experience than when you walk into a play yeah. with, you know, great reviews and you have high expectations. You want your goddamn money's worth. Right. Um, so there was that aspect oh, it was, to this. Yeah, it was and much more engaging. We had heard about the theater before. We actually were spending the night in New York at a hotel. And we were chatting with another guest at happy hour. And uh, he said, are you going to see any plays? And we said, are you going to see any plays? And he said, I like to go to this theater on 59th Street. Which is four and blocks he was away. From, he was, where was he from? Alaska? Yeah. You know, yeah. he had come all the way across the universe uh, to New York. And, and we said, and what are you talking about? <laughs> he likes to go there. He says, you know, it's all, it's interesting, it's new. Um, it's and it's theater. not like he was a cutting edge, no. creative person. He was pretty much like um, the people in Fernhill and us. Yeah. <laughs> so, yeah, so it was, yeah, that was, you're absolutely right. And we also, just to finish, talking about a New York experience. So of course, as you mentioned, you hadn't eaten, so you were starved. So we walk out of the theater 
And what are we going to do? Can we grab a bite? It's already a little late. It's after 9 and, o'clock. And as Dan mentioned, we're, we're kind of in midtown no man's land. Right. There's no place to go. We realize we could go to Route 57, which we often go to if we're going to city center or something, which is on 57th Street near 6th. And we walk in the Route 57 after walking by a bunch of abandoned uh, restaurants, whatever. Not abandoned, but, but just light. Restaurants uh, that would have closed earlier. Right. And this well, there's place, two things. We don't want to do the whole meal thing. Right. We don't want to go we through the whole ritual we want to get of quick. a nice restaurant. Right. We're too late. Right. Okay. We got to get home to right. New Jersey. And, it, and two things. And the second thing is that we want decent food. So yeah. we go into Route 57 and it is hopping, but they give us a table and we just say to the waiter, here's our deal. Exactly is what you just described. This yeah. is what we We've want. We've been there a million times. You know, so what, we to know order. what to order. He, he says to me, I don't even finish it. Guy got it. Within five minutes, I, five minutes, maybe five less, minutes. we have our complete meal and our drinks. They're pros. They must have just taken it from someone, <laughs> someone else's order. Yeah. We I weren't mean, ordering BLTs. I mean, yeah. it was insane. Yeah. And yeah, we got out of there. So that only in New York. Yes. And uh, then, of course, we got on the Jersey Turnpike. And now that's another story. That's a New York story, too. That's New York, New Jersey. The Eastern Spur was closed. Yeah, it's called New York Under Construction. Um, All right. So baseball season's ending. So, uh, you know, talk about good timing in terms of uh, watching uh, the key moment of the season. baseball season's ending. That's good timing. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, Well, the good timing was... That's over. We watched to see if Pete Alonso was going to break that record uh, for most uh, home runs by a rookie. And so we sat in front of the TV and watched him bat last night. And sure enough, the kid did it. The kid hits a home run. And he now has 53 home runs, which breaks the record previously held by Aaron Judge for most homers by a rookie. And what's amazing about uh, Pete Alonso is he's like a kid next door. He's not like a real superstar baseball player. He does. I always say he looks like an overgrown toddler. Right. I mean, he really is a kid. They had a very cute interview with his fiance and his parents yeah. who were all... Lovely yes. and excited and relieved that he had finally done it. Right. And they didn't have to cringe during every at-bat. But he's like a kid. Hoping for him to well, do Well, other players act like, yeah, that's what I'm supposed to do. Or, you know, if only people knew how great I was, they were catching up with it. This kid is just like beside himself that he's had as much of ex- more success than he ever thought he'd have. And they actually focus on him in the next inning. 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 He, he's in he, the field. No, he's on first base. Well, he's playing first base. He's playing first base yeah. with tears in his eyes. He's crying. Eyes. He's crying on the field. He's 15 so minutes after, And it's kind of like you're violating his space almost. The cameras say, and the guys are saying, and this is 10 minutes after it happened, the kid's crying. The kid's crying. And uh, he is. Yeah. And they uh, interview the, uh, I saw or read something about the interview, the manager of the other team after the game, the Braves. And he said, uh, that kid's 100% real. So yeah. there you go. Uh, it, there was an article about... Um, so that was a little human interest in baseball. Yes, there you which go. Which kind of woke me up. There you go. So there's an article about breaking in baseball. Goes. I just want to touch on it because we talked about it before. And we talked about Pete Alonso breaking in his glove and ruining his wife's microwave, which Sadie was wise to say that they should get a new microwave. And I think uh, Sadie's insight is, was... An extra microwave. Well-received. They can afford it now. It'll be Rookie of the Year. Uh, but they say here, uh, you know, because these, it, it's funny, it's a high tech game. Everything's high tech. And the baseball gloves are as nice as they could be. And yet they don't come broken in. And there's no high tech way to break them in. It's crazy. So well, they say. I suspect people want to do it their own way anyway. There's no, they and say. I, I suspect there's also superstition. 
and I ritual mean, involved here. They said not just uh, maybe. You know, well, technique. They, they say in the time some players run over their gloves with trucks. Some place the, the ball a ball inside the pocket, wrap it tight with a rope or a belt. Buckets of water, steamers, uh, creams, oils, conditioners, mallets, pitching machines can also be used. Uh, some gloves now come with tags, not to put in the microwave, but major leaguers still put them in the microwave. So it's just uh, <laughs> like Alonzo. And uh, they have an article here about the guy who's in charge of it for the Mets, this clubhouse guy. And uh, he's overwhelmed. He's working on these guys' gloves all the time, including sometimes restitching the gloves. Uh, and the funny thing is that Todd Frazier, playing for the the Mets, says, I don't know anything about that. I just give it to the clubhouse guy. He's a wonderful guy. He works on the glove. But I had to wor- learn about it this year because my kid's got a baseball glove and I got to break it in. And I don't know what the heck to, <laughs> heck to do. So he's getting some advice on that. But uh, there, something very related in terms of stitching in baseball, there was a different article which about knitting at baseball games. I see what you're doing there. Yeah, pretty good. Huh? And knitting at baseball games. And this is crazy. It, the headline says, for some, a three-hour game is a great time to knit a sweater. And the article says at the outset, what is definitely true, that the games are longer than they've ever been. Sometimes there's very little action on the field. It's just a matter of uh, strikeouts. And There and are moments of inaction. M- as- moments, extended <laughs> moments of inaction. Uh, and, and they're losing every year uh, a number of people. The fans, they draw fewer fans every year, except for people who knit. And they interview a bunch of people who are knitters. And they say extended games are, if anything, a positive for someone who knits. We sit for long periods of time and knit. Now, you can't do that with other sports. That's exactly you right. You miss action. According okay. to this article. Doesn't work with hockey. No. Doesn't work with football. Okay. But baseball is perfect. That's right. And what's interesting about this article, they're not just interviewing people who are like, 65 years old, you know, knitting for ages. These, there are some young women in this article, yeah, right? In their I, 20s, right. et cetera. You didn't, you didn't notice? That? I didn't notice uh, that. A lot of them are young women. And I can understand if uh, you're not totally into every moment of the game, how you like to have something else to do. Right. Now, one of the women says she actually thinks better, she's more focused, etc., when she knits. And she will do it, uh, you know, almost any time. At conferences. The other thing about knitting is you don't have to look every minute. I mean, you've all we've all seen women knitting away, and they're you know they're talking, they're looking right. up, they're not staring at the needles. No. Uh, but here's a tip. Yeah. Easier to get into City Field with knitting needles right. than Yankee Stadium because it's okay? security. Security. So, yeah. So uh, if you're going to do that. Well, the other tip is don't use metal knitting needles. Uh, that also helps you get through. Okay. Yeah. All right. But uh, it's exactly as you say. This woman, says, this woman here was interviewed. Says, I went to a football game. I brought knitting needles. I didn't touch it. There's too much going on. There's action on every play. You can't knit. Yeah. And, uh, you and know. the other woman says, you know, somebody can hit a run. Maybe she misses the actual hit. Yeah. But she, when she hears the crowd, right. she has plenty of time to look up She's a, and yeah. see him run around the base. Right. So this guy hits a home run. She hits the ball. She hears the crowd. She, she can find the ball before it goes over the fence. It's, it's ideal. 
And plus, you get a hot dog and a beer. It's that you can't beat it. So right. certain she enjoys the atmosphere. Yeah. She enjoys the food. She gets some knitting done. It's a win-win. And certain stadiums actually have a special section for knitters. It's this place that they don't get foul balls. You don't want a foul ball if you're knitting. So it's very far. They want you seats. might drop a stitch exactly. or a bunch of stitches. Exactly. So they want seats very far from the action. And they call it the stitch and pitch. That's the that's the uh, promotion, the stitch and pitch. So maybe what I got to do is uh, take, take up, up knitting. knitting again. That could you be. You know, I used to knit in in my youth. Yeah. Actually, but frankly, I'm not uh, tip top in the hand. Well, doesn't Sadie knitters or Sadie crochet? Sadie crochets. Well, she's a super crochet. I think we can work this in. And uh, she's she's venturing forth into uh, counted cross stitch, I think. Mm-hmm. Uh, but I don't know if that really uh, has had a lasting effect but she uh, she has crocheted many fabulous items okay. for uh, friends and family good all right so um oh you had that article uh that journal article about uh nfl who- women yes okay all right so there was an article in the wall street journal uh about um you know the headline was something like uh you know uh what NFL team is run by women? Yeah. And uh, it's the Philadelphia Eagles. Yeah. Uh, can you believe that? I mean, I, I guess I can sort of believe that. Uh, we were talking a little bit about Eagles fans in mm. general. And uh, there are some serious, intense female Eagles fans uh, that you uh, sometimes even hear from when you're listening to those um, Philadelphia sports uh, call-in stations. Etc. So there's a tradition of uh, women in football uh, in the Philadelphia area. But what makes this interesting is the actual administration of the team mm-hmm. has an awful lot of women, including the general counsel, including senior vice president of marketing and media, senior vice president of revenue and strategy, and actually many, many others. What I did was I actually went on the NFL website. And, when, and they have a drop-down of all the different team websites. So I, I went to a smattering of teams. Mm-hmm. And under team, you can go to, like, you know, staff. And you can get administrative staff, etc. Philadelphia, it's not just these women in the picture and in the article. Mm-hmm. They have a lot of women involved in the management of the team. Mm-hmm. Uh, quite a few. And it's just curious that it's developed that way. Now, I looked up some other teams. I can't find any other team that has that kind of showing. It could be they're sensitive to it. It could be they knew the article was coming out mm-hmm. and they redid their website to reflect that. Um, I mean, there are some women co-owners. There, you know, there are you know various women involved in these other teams. But for some reason, it's a thing with the Eagles, oh. and they say it's not a matter of just trying to be diverse in terms of gender. Mm-hmm. They want, they're seeking a diversity of thought, a yeah. diversity of thinking, and uh, they claim that it has enhanced certain decision making, like choosing a coach. Yeah, that's nonsense. But so, uh, so they cite uh, that uh, you know there were not so many women involved yeah. when Chip Kelly uh, 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 was. Can I stop this right what? there? These women weren't involved in choosing the coach. Okay, the article sort of suggests that they say broad decision making. They have a better coach now. They have a better all fine. You know, who chooses the coach, the general manager. Okay, they talk about not choosing by committee. You don't say. What does the person in media think? 
what is the person who runs this uh, executive asset pig? It doesn't work that way. The coach is chosen by one person. Might make a phone call to the owner, but Howie Roseman, the general manager of the Philadelphia Eagles, chooses the coach. End of story. I don't care what the Wall Street Journal writes, all right? So I do credit the notion that, uh, why would, who, who might have doubted, that there are a lot of women in all these aspects of the operations of the Philadelphia Eagles, and there are a lot of aspects of it. it it's a large organization. And, and one of the things they talked about was their head of their foundation was one of the main parts of the article. Uh, I, I forget if it's well, autism or what. Well, the Eagles Autism Challenge. Exactly right. Okay. Uh, there's all kinds of things going on in Philadelphia. There's a lot of money involved in that organization. But I will tell you this, and what the, the article kind of cozies up to, but doesn't quite get to because they really can't, because it was, which I think is what would make it compelling if it were true, is football operations. The football operations are not run by the women. Women are on these other operations. Now, again, they may be more diverse in these other aspects than the other teams are. But if the women were running the football operations, then you'd have a story. And they're not. The, the, yeah, I, you know what? I, I don't really, uh, that doesn't really interest me at all. Because, it may not. Um, how many women are going to really have experience with the actual football? They are making contributions where the they only- have... Uh, skills sure. and experience. Right. You do have some women who have been involved in sports, coaching rugby teams mm-hmm. and administering other kinds of sports. That's true. But largely these women are contributing to aspects like marketing uh, right. and the writing of contracts right. in areas. There's that no reason worked. why the general counsel can't be a woman. There's no reason why the person right. in charge of marketing can't be a woman. It, I, but also, you know what it does? It changes the um, sort of sense of um, the personality, the community of the whole organization. I'm not sure what that means. uh, You know what? I think uh, I I suspect if you have a different makeup of people working day to day (coughs) together and running the team, um, there is a different sort of uh, administrative personality. That okay. may affect things. I don't think you would have ever seen um, the Eagles uh, hire somebody like Antonio Brown. And yet, the Eagles have cheerleaders, and the Giants do not. And uh, you might say, with a female sensibility, why would you have cheerleaders? I don't think all women are against cheerleaders. I'm not saying all okay. women are for anything and, or uh, against and, uh, anything. You know, let's talk to the marketing, no, the, no, the well, head of marketing, Jen Kavanaugh. Uh, well, maybe there's a reason for cheerleaders. Uh, maybe there is. But what I'm saying is it's not that simple. It's not going to really, the decision making is, is not going to fall down in terms of, you know, uh, gender sensibilities. Hey, look. Oh, I'm, saying, no, I the, just, I'm saying I think it it's creates perfect. a different climate. Maybe okay? it does. But, but, and not all women are against uh, other women in short skirts. And besides, you have explained to me many times the cheerleaders are not there as sex objects. They are there to create enthusiasm. Well, of course. Okay. It's not, that's a, so why should that because be Because I've been watching football for a long time. I know that. It, it says that the Eagles, look, I mean, I think it's fine. Anyway, that... I know, fine, you think it's fine, et cetera, you don't think it's important, but it's just notable. You just go look at the rosters of uh, their administrative staff. Mm -hmm. It's just weird that there are that many women involved in Philadelphia and nowhere else uh, in the It would surprise me, too. It would surprise me, too. I would have thought that a place like L.A., for example, uh, but in any event, if you say so, I have no reason to doubt it. Um, 
basketball. We haven't talked about basketball yet. We're going to get into the basketball season soon. But I have good news or bad news, depending on how you feel about this. You don't have to follow it because it's all been resolved. And how do we know that? Because the Times did an interesting thing, as it does every once in a while. What they did was they ran a simulation of the entire season. And you might say, wow, that's pretty hard to do. That's very ambitious. And the answer is no and no, because there's a game called NBA 2K. And there's also an old-time game called Stratomatic. And what they do in both those games is they put together the statistics and a real range of statistics on a player-by-player basis, which allows you to see two teams match up and you would play a game based on all the probabilities associated with the abilities as measured by these statistics. And you can have the result of any particular contest and you can, in a sense, model the entire season, which is what these two outfits did. Oh my God, my head is just exploding. Exactly. It is. To even think of but all that data. But with computers, you can oh do that. Oh my God. But you can do that. And here's the results from the 2019-2020 season. This is going to save everybody, Granger in particular, a lot of time. All right? So how's it going to go? Uh, number one, uh, the Warriors are not going to go away. They're still going to be very competitive. The Rockets, who now have uh, James Horton and Russell Westbrook, Uh, reunited are also going to do extremely well Uh, in one of the simulations the nets are so good that they go to the finals the nba finals the celtics will not be good Uh, not a surprise to those who know that they're losing kyrie irving the knicks better than people think and again in one of the simulations we'll get to the nba finals the mvp is going to be the greek freak but his team is not going to do that great the rookie of the year zion williamson and the champion of the NBA in both simulations yeah. will be, believe it or not, the Los Angeles Lakers. Both simulations have Los Angeles Lakers, who now have LeBron James and Anthony Davis. Both have the Los Angeles Lakers winning the championship. So why is that so unbelievable? Because they were terrible last year. Okay. And this would be right. a huge reversal of fortune. Uh, right. So how do you like that? I do. Um, I find it fascinating. Have I and rocked since, your world? Since you're endorsing this, it seems clear that that can't possibly happen. Because I cannot pick because anything. You cannot pick anything. That's right. Um, although uh, you are a bit relieved, even though you were very tentative about uh, rooting for your Giants. Well, I was relieved that they have been doing. What so I said last. When we last left our listeners, yes, we had not seen DJ. Daniel Jones. Or what is it called? Danny Dime. Danny Dimes. Performing. Uh, and, and we have now seen him twice. And yes. as I said, I thought he might do pretty well. But on the other hand, he's going to have some real ups and downs. He has to learn as a rookie learns. He had a great first game. And he had a less great second game. Even though and the Giants they won. won. They right? won. But he's, he's, so far in two games, he's lost two fumbles and thrown two interceptions. So that's what you get with and a rookie the quarterback. the team seems somewhat galvanized. They are galvanized. They are energized. They are energized. By the by the youth and by this uh, new leader. As we Probably all are. just by the change. You know, not... Let's not limit it to well, I can, this I can, guy's I can, No, I can be very specific. They, they're galvanized by the fact that he's mobile. Okay. So there are, te- there are negative plays uh, that would be negative plays in the past are now positive plays because he suddenly leaves the pocket and runs for a first down. Is he doing it? Uh, is the defense doing any better? Because Strangely, they had- did well today, but what they did something that was brilliant today. They scheduled the Washington Redskins, and if uh, the Washington Redskins are as bad as they seem, they will go winless this season. So Okay. 
So here's what our listeners have been waiting for. Yeah. More bird sex. Yes. Okay. I, I was thinking the other day, it's been a long time since we talked about what the birds are up to. And uh, here's a review uh, titled in the Wall Street Journal this weekend called A Passion for Penguins. It's about a book by Lloyd Spencer Davis, yeah. 358 pages. Uh, titled A Polar Affair. It's basically the biography of um, a man named George Murray Levick, who was on Captain Robert Scott's expedition to Antarctica Mm -hmm. um, in 1910. Mm-hmm. And he's a doctor, but uh, for he just um, gets interested in penguins while he's down there and uh, becomes the world's first penguin biologist. Now, we've mentioned him before uh, because in talking about penguins, we mentioned that he wrote, uh, he, he kept records uh, of the penguins that he studied. Mm-hmm. Okay. And some of the things to say about their sexual practices, including homosexuality and necrophilia, were so um, racy that when he wrote the information down, he did it in Greek. Huh. Yeah, that's right. Okay, so he wouldn't yeah. offend uh, anybody. Right. That was an unpublished manuscript. He eventually publishes some information. But uh, Mr. Davis, who's a scientist in his own right? Um, and has studied penguins uh, all these years after uh, Levick, uh, tracks down that original um, unpublished manuscript, translates the Greek, and realizes that uh, Levick and he are, have found out the same information all these years apart. Mm-hmm. And uh, it really sounds uh, possibly like the no- not the most fascinating uh, book ever, but uh, the, um, the sexual details are just kind of fun. The mating habits of uh, the penguins, you know, are always interesting. And he states, Mr. Davis probably Dr. Davis, states that contrary to scientific belief, penguins are not monogamous. In fact, when they do an experiment and put a penguin toy, a toy penguin, out on the ice, the male penguins are falling all over themselves, getting in in line to mate with it. In line, yes. Yes. And so, anyway, it seems like there are some fun, uh, you know, descriptions here. The uh, reviewer, Sarah Wheeler, uh, actually states, you know, most people know all about these expeditions. So, it, you know, might be a little redundant or boring. I I really know not much at all about uh, these. uh, Nor do I. uh, Antarctic uh, uh, expeditions or the race to the South Pole. Well, I'm a little I do a little so, bit about it. Um, yeah. I don't know if I would ever read this, but uh, it seems uh, kind of fun All in right. some ways. Okay. So I found uh, a movie, and I think you already looked into more than I did, but I just here's, here's what's stunning about this. The Times has a review of a film called Sink or Swim, which is about a male synchronized swimming team. Uh, a bunch of guys getting together who are not necessarily uh, elite athletes uh, who are living lives which have the normal challenges that are associated with real lives and somehow they end up bonding in in connection with um, synchronized swimming. And I'm saying to myself, we saw this movie. 
we saw this movie uh, months ago. Is this the same movie? And it's in French. And, and I'm saying to myself, uh, was it re-released? Was it retitled? What's going on? So I brought it to your attention. And you determined what? What? No. It seemed like it seemed like French to us. Right. But it was British. <laughs> um, we did see a movie called Swimming with Men. Right. Uh, starring uh, Rob Brydon. Right, right, right. Of course, okay. Rob Brydon. Um, in uh, just, you know, either earlier this year, I think early in the year. Right. Or, or a year ago. And it was exactly the same movie. Yeah. But this one... This one, which is called Sink or Swim, and it's uh, by Gilles Lelouch, um, looks like fun. The trailer's great. It looks a little bit uh, funnier, uh, in, but maybe that's because it's in French. Um, they have women saying very pithy things. Really? Uh, it's they, subtitled, right? It, yes. Okay. Um, and uh, it kind of looks like fun, but it's exactly the same movie. Not only that... Yeah. It seems to be based on a 2008 Swedish film called Alt Führer, Everything Floats. Well, it's, again, the exact same story, but everybody's Swedish. And the photographs from that, the team looks a little more in shape. It's possible Swedish middle-aged men are more in shape right. than British or French. Um, but, uh, but anyway, this is, I, you know, I think I need to see it. I know we were lukewarm about the British. Yeah, we were positive about it. We were positive about it. You know, but but, but it, this is there's a whole genre of film about, about uh, men, men and sync- doing synchronized swimming. Middle-aged men in synchronized swimming. <laughs> hey, you know, it's crazy. There's nothing new under the sun, Daniel. Oh, nothing new. Hey, hey, hey. So right. sink or swim. Sink or swim. Look, look for, for it. it. We have to look for it. If you see it, let us know. Oh, it's definitely going to be at uh, Montgomery. Yeah. Okay. I'm looking for our local theaters where the elderly convene to watch art (laughs) films. That's right, and sort of help (laughs) help them each other into their seats and out. So that's where we'll be going. Okay. Another uh, quick review of a book I probably won't read called "The World in a Box." Yeah. Uh, Cabinets of Curiosities by Patrick Morier, and uh, this book was actually first published in. Uh, French and English in 2002. Why exactly it's coming out now, I don't know. But it's just Cabinets of Curiosities, uh, you know, it's about basically hoarding. It's about the tradition of collecting. And uh, there's been some great collectors. Uh, What he's writing about here are not uh, like people like my dad, uh, but people, royalty and fabulous uh, collections. And Charles Wilson Peale, founder and proprietor of the Philadelphia Museum, who wants to have a little bit of everything. And of course, one of the great uh, cabinet cabinets of curiosities in this area is the Mercer Museum. Henry Mercer uh, wanted to preserve a little bit of everything of early American life. And uh, you remember there's like a um, uh, a covered wagon hanging from the ceiling in the middle and uh, there's all kinds of early American uh, crafts and technologies and objects all over the place in this giant cement building. Right. Um, right. So that comes out of that same tradition. What made this really fun for me, um, and this is just a book about these various collections and the idea of these obsessions and trying to gather up 
everything frees the ineluctable, ineluctable progress of life or history on an island of sense amid an ocean of devoid of meaning um, is that about a month ago or a few weeks ago, I got uh, a little note from a former student uh, in, uh, in, in my cubby, in the, in my mailbox mm -hmm. at school. Right. And it was a wonderful postcard picture from a museum of this amazing cabinet. And, uh, the note said, I was traveling in Sweden, thought you might enjoy this. Yeah. Okay. So in this review, this review is illustrated with a picture of that cabinet. It was a cabinet belonging to the Swedish King Gustavus Adolphus. And I'd never heard of this cabinet before. I'd never seen it before. I've given this card and then two weeks later, it's in the Wall Street Journal. Well, and it was not and just by what are a, the odds? a delightful yeah, yeah. student of mine. It just shows you how things Go around and around. Wow, and but that's it's amazing that uh, this person knew, lighted on this, which is not the most, I won't say it's obscure, but it's not the most obvious objet art. And then you see it in the journal a few weeks later. It's crazy. It's just serendipity. Yeah. Uh, and uh, it's funny. So um, you got to keep reading the paper. I guess we'll have to get one of those. You never um, know what you're going to see. All right. So we're going to close our obituary. This is one of the most interesting obituaries I've seen in recent times. And not a guy I ever heard of. A fellow named Robert Hunter. Grateful Dead lyricist with a long, strange career. And, of course, they use that phrase, long, strange career, Wrote, oh, what a long, strange trip it's been. Exactly right. Grateful Dead. And uh, he wrote the lyrics to Uncle John's band and quite a few other songs. But his story is bizarre. And, and let me get right to the heart of what's bizarre about it. And that is that he was the subject, the willing subject, the volunteer subject, of 1960s experiments by the CIA with LSD. The, uh, the CIA experimented, this was in Palo Alto, and they took volunteers and they were experimenting to see its potential as a mind control drug, if you can believe it. And uh, he was given, and this is, this is from a book about the CIA practices, but they knew this fellow, uh, Stephen Kinsner, identified the documents of the work by the CIA, including which included his name, Robert Hunter, the subject of the obituary being one of the subjects. And he said Hunter was given LSD, uh, psilocybin, and mescaline. And uh, what Hunter says is that uh, what this, the LSD did, if you can believe it, is it stimulated his ability to write lyrics. Uh, here's the quote. The words jumped from subconscious to the page. It changed the way he looked at things and described things consistently throughout the rest of his life. You, you know, you're saying that with, with such wonderment yeah. in your voice. I mean, that just sounds like uh, exactly what uh, NS, any uh, you know rock musician would say. You know, well, but maybe it's true. Drugs I, enhance my writing. Well, that's what it was. It's not late breaking news, you know. Well, here's the late breaking hey, news. Well, you know what would be more surprising? Somebody said, "Yeah, I took all this LSD and it didn't help me write at all." Well, there are two things about it which are striking. One is uh, that, and this is the conclusion. tax dollars paid for it. Well, yes, the conclusion of this guy Kinzer, who wrote for the New York Times, so the Times credits him entirely. He says the United States government was in a way responsible for creating the Grateful Dead and the whole psychedelic counterculture that followed. 
mean, it's in the New York Times. That's what it says. It must be true. And I guess that was an unintended consequence of this. And and this guy, they they quote all these colorful lyrics that he used and how he came up with these all these images. So is the he wrote for Dylan. He you know he, is the government doing anything creative? I'm not right? onto it right and, now. Uh, I don't know what they're doing at the right forefront now. I, like that, one can only hope. Too busy. <laughs> Building walls. I don't know. That could be creative too. I don't really know. But here, here's another thing about this guy. On top of everything, he wasn't a very pretentious guy. He was pretty open-minded about lyrics generally, and he would not allow his lyrics to be published on the on the record album covers, if you will. There was a lot of room in liner notes in those days, given the size of LPs. He wouldn't do it. And his reasoning was this. His reasoning is that often people couldn't really hear the lyrics clearly uh and this is true before things were digital to be sure and so we made up our own lyrics. and people would make up their own lyrics and he said those lyrics are better than the lyrics i write here's okay, the quote so this guy's definitely on drugs he says quote i've generally found that the words the songs i thought i heard in the works of others were more colorful and enigmatically apt than the words i eventually discovered were intended more to my personal taste I assume that that is true also of my own work. And if you think about it, there's something to that. Because people are going to put something themselves into a song if it's not clear, and it's going to mean that much more to them. Often when I'm watching Shakespeare, I have to make up some of the words myself. (laughs) And how does that work? I'm not really following uh, what it's doing. And I got to say, I'm no Shakespeare. Well, I don't think the, I'm enhancing. I don't think uh, that. This, this is not a Shakespeare situation. This is uh, I, I apparently this is could be the Shakespeare of our time. Dave. Apparently, this is a uh, recognized and acknowledged phenomenon in uh, rock music. People bringing their own words to the songs and understanding them in a way that fits their own life situation and taste. So he was on to that, uh, but uh, which is an insight on his part. But also, he's responsible for quite a bit of the Grateful Dead's popularity, That's all CIA. because of the That's CIA. CIA. They're very busy. Your government dollars at work. Okay. On that note, uh, we're going to blast off yes. to oh. another adventure. Happy Rosh Hashanah. Tova, as we say in the business. And okay. we'll uh, see you Looking next week. Looking forward to your favorite holiday, Yum Kippur. Well, it's Coming a, up we got to wait 10 days for that. Um, how will we do it? Yes. This is Tamsin Granger. And Dan Abuhoff. With Tamsin and Dan Read the Paper. We'll see you again next week.